Is that the sex music that you guys were playing two hours ago at the end of last night? <laughs> it was Halloween. I wouldn't be surprised. I know that poor Nat uh, wrapped up his uh, gig last night probably around 4 or 5 this morning and still managed to make it into the studio on time. Same That's with Jack. They, they had uh, like 300 people at their party. Oh, uh, no kidding. Night. Yeah, we've had an hour of sleep. It's going to be the best show ever. 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 <laughs> Meanwhile, I've had plenty of sleep, and uh, so I'm feeling really chirpy. The one tag is going to be like, there were no tags. We could not <laughs> glean any tags from today's conversation. Well, well, it was Halloween. I mean, that's a big, uh, big night, huh? I, you know, it's, I'm kind of over it, but uh, I know for younger people, it's, it's, still, uh, it's still a big deal. It's certainly a big deal for my daughter, although she hasn't gotten to the age yet where like Jack and Nat and EJ and, you know, where they go to parties and they have really a good time and everybody dresses up and stuff. She, she's still she, in like uh, two she, people on the opposite ends of the her, gymnasium dance floor. Yeah, kind of. Although that's all they talked about, as I told you, Patrick, uh, before we started the show, which, by the way, is the main course uh, on Heritage Radio Network. Yeah, I'm Patrick Martin. <laughs> I'm Katie Kiefer, and we're sponsored today by the Hearst Ranch. Hearst, excellent beef out excellent of California. Beef program, yeah. All grass-fed. Anyway, uh, so yes, I, so they did the big candy grab in uh, Delilah's father's building, which is a big multi-story building in the Upper West Side, and then they... Uh, slithered over to my house soaking wet because there was like a really raucous thunderstorm for about 15 minutes. I thought it was fireworks, but it was thunder. No, I love it. It all goes into the, oh, you know, Halloween is the one day where like it's okay for kids to like spray a house in shaving cream. Oh, or, yeah. Throw some eggs around. Yeah, you it's betcha. like a jellable offense. But like on Halloween, you kind of let it go. And plus, it's the day of the dead. All the ghosts Absolutely. are coming up. Yeah, yeah. No, I, like I love the, the holiday. It's the but the dressing up part of it, I seem to have kind of given up that that part of my life. Because I, as I said to Curtis earlier the other day, I said I costume myself every day anyway. <laughs> oh my god, you! I, I role play a lot dressed. actually. <laughs> really. <laughs> So, um, well, and then, of course, Roberta's here had an unbelievable, unbelievable event. Amazing. So event. sorry I missed it. It was a bike rally. Yeah. With uh, little mini motorbikes. Yeah, and they, they had built a, a track. And, yeah, yeah, it was pretty it was, amazing. It was madness and mayhem, I understand. And Brandon was the MC, and he was dressed in this hockey uniform that's right here. Oh, yeah. And he was, like, spitting beer in the bikers' faces or tackling them. <laughs> it was very, very funny. It was oh, kind of like yeah. a velodrome, in a way. Well, you know. Oh, that's sort of Curtis's vision for the uh, Brooklyn Velodrome, which will be called Velo City or Velocity. Um, he wants to have teams, you know, who mm-hmm. have different sort of um, ways of riding their bikes. Like some are going to be like dirt bikes and some of them are going to be really fast racing bikes wearing the streamlined skin suit. And the other ones are going to be wearing armor. And then there's going to be like a bunch of bikers who ride in tandem, like four or six across the track that you have to like maneuver around. And yeah, but, it's going to uh, be Velodromes are big, though. It's like bigger than a football field. Yeah, well, I don't know how big this one is, but we could have like a test velodrome or something. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting um, show. Today we're going to be uh, talking about um, butchering. We yeah. have a, a celebrity butcher we from do. New York. We uh, do. It's really interesting how uh, suddenly butchering has become the trendy thing. So our guest today is Tom Milan. Hi, I'm Trendy. And uh, you look so trendy. I, I mean, I'm, your, your trend is just like glowing, like radioactive, man. And um, <coughs> we... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's to me, having been in the butchering business myself back in the 80s uh, and early 90s, when there were, you know, there were still three or four butchers around on the Upper West Side. And it was kind of one of those neighborhood shops, like your favorite mm-hmm. neighborhood barber shop or something. And then uh, suddenly they all went away almost simultaneously. And now it's it's a regrowing industry in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's pretty much what back. happened. It's, it's exploding back onto it's the scene. It's exploding back onto the scene after the rents exploded it out of Manhattan. There's only a few left in Manhattan, although there's still a few real old-timey guys out there. Well, what happened? I mean, why did those guys go out of business? Were they rent. not really? It was the rent. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the for the business that I was working with, um, they lost their lease and the landlord wouldn't renew. He wanted to put in a gap mm-hmm. in the space. He wanted to take over three storefronts and put in a, a gap or a Dwayne Reed or something like that. This was on Broadway at 90th Street. Just to play devil's advocate, I mean, were some of these butchers like not adjusting to the times or charging enough or diversifying in a way? Or Incredible as it may seem to you, Patrick. The whole concept of grass-fed versus Mm -hmm. grain-fed, organically grown meats, all that kind of stuff, it was not even a blip on the radar yet. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And this was in, um, what was right? Mm, let's see, my kid was born in 96. So this was in the late 80s, early 90s that I worked there. And the shop closed around um, 1997. And um, Which shop did you work for? It was Shimmicks? called the Broadway Butcher. A Broadway Butcher. And it was run by a Frenchman named Michel Guiton, who had been my chef. He was actually a cook. He was a chef. And uh, he taught me how to cook. And he and his wife, who was an ex-Broadway dancer, had uh, decided that they would open this shop. Um, and he had brought in a couple of guys that he had worked with for years and years, and okay. including another American named Paul Redder, who still works as a butcher over on the east side with hmm. uh, Lenny Simchak. But um, we had this really rocking little crew, and I did prepared foods for them. I ran hmm. a line of, of prepared foods so you that could you come in. That you made at your house or that you made uh, Totally there illegal. Them? Yep. No, I made them in my house. Mm-hmm. And I trucked them down there every day at 4 o'clock. And, uh, you know, so you could buy a lamb chop from Michelle and you'd buy some ratatouille from me or, nice. you know, something like that. It was really a sweet little thing. We had so much fun. It was the best job I've ever had. I worked my ass off. Oh, my God. Well, Tom, when you got into uh, butchering, I mean, was it the lack of butchers that kind of made you want to do it? Or was it always something you just had had an affinity towards? Uh, Are you asking? So butchering, like, were you like, God, there's there needs to be more butchers. Like, I want to because you were a restaurant cook, right? No, I was uh, I I was a a manager at uh, Marlowe and since I, I did all the purchasing for the the little specialty shop that they had in the front there, and then I also... Uh, you went from being a purchasing agent to being a butcher? That's well, an I w- interesting transition. <laughs> I, was, I was also... Not obvious. I was also... The, I, I wore a lot of hats. I was kind of their special projects guy. I did uh, mm-hmm. all of their American cheese programs for their restaurants, and I mm-hmm. also uh, uh, was one of the uh, main editors for the Diner Journal, which is their magazine. Mm-hmm. Their oh, yeah, that's a very it's nice a great journal. magazine they do. Um, but, I, no, I, I, got, I got ambushed. I got drafted. I didn't. Uh, I didn't. It, it, the, the I didn't make the decision. The decision made me. No kidding. Yeah. Mm. So what happened? So you? They said, you know what? We need to start buying whole animals. As what? Economy of scale for the restaurants? No. They, what they were trying to do is figure out a way to make local sustainable meat less expensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is all of our goal. And the, the best way that they could f- figure out was to start buying animals whole because when you buy an animal whole you know instead of paying you know fifteen dollars a pound or something like that for a dry aged strip loin you can buy the whole animal for say you know 350 or 375 a pound hanging weight and then you can make you know if you have a crafty um, restaurant crew they can make all sorts of delightful things out of all the different bits and pieces of it and that, and that what that about was a the uh, ground i mean that is the big challenge right i mean what uh secrets did you guys come up with about how to use all the ground meat that's generated from like a whole cow for instance well i mean you know obviously you know one of the restaurants that was involved was uh the diner which has always been sort of renowned as you know having a really amazing burger and uh, mm-hmm. we just went about making it that much more amazing. Um, if we did have any other ground meat left over, I mean, obviously, it would go into, uh, you know, meatballs or you know, something sure. like that. Pasta sauce. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We, 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 did a, a, we did a lot of specials with ground short rib meatballs, which were really delicious. Now, let me ask you this, because I, <clears throat> I actually had a little conversation with Bill Telepan, because um, one of the things that I was thinking about writing an article about was the sort of rise of the burger as kind of this, you know, gourmet item. All of a sudden, it's been elevated to a much greater and loftier status than it used to enjoy. And, um, and part of that is due to this trend that a lot of chefs have been um, pursuing, which is <coughs> to grind these proprietary blends where you have like, you know, one third of it is short ribs and one third is brisket and one third is, you know, chuck or whatever. And, um, you know, I know how to cook. So like, I don't think of short ribs as something that cooks up real fast. Like that's the kind of meat that's, it's got a stringy, tough muscle. It's, uh, you know, it generally needs to be braised. So it's cooked right, slowly, a lot low of temperature. Yeah. And so how do you grind up a piece of short rib and have it not be sort of tough and... Um, bouncy yeah <laughs> rubbery mm. yes exactly uh, I mean basically like if you if you cut anything up into small enough pieces it's going to be it's going to be fine mm-hmm. um, that said the, the but you also don't get the same groovy flavor I don't think when it's not cooked for a nice long time right or you do you feel like the flavor is still as succulent as it is when it's cooked in a slow way with some moist heat no I'm, I'm not going to you know lie to anybody and say oh it's exactly the same it's, it's not the same, but you do get, you know, the, 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 
the fat content in there, which right. is like... Which is what, it largely gives it flavor, right? Because fat, yeah, it gives it fat flavor. is what gives meat flavor. Right. And it's it's not just flavor. It's also, you know, a matter of texture. So you get that mm-hmm. nice, like, you know, that nice mouthfeel. You can, like, mm-hmm. cook out a meatball in a sauce or, you know, uh, however you're going to do it. And you'll get um, this really amazing mouthfeel from all that fat that's in there. And we right. definitely did not spare any fat. <laughs> So, um, not, not for words, dieters, you weren't, you weren't, really, you weren't trimming off those short ribs. You were like just letting it go with all of its outside fat. Yeah. yeah. And Aww. what, what was your, right. I mean, burgers usually range between like 70% uh, lean and 30% fat. Or, I mean, what is the general ratio of fat to lean meat? Like in the average bur- American burger? I think the average American burger is probably more like 75, 25, 75 mm-hmm. lean to 25 fat. Um, you know, I, I imagine that there's a lot of places that maybe do, you know, something that's more like um, 65, 35 if it's an inexpensive. I think the reason why, you know, I, I don't know, I feel like there's these two burger camps. There's the camp that really likes the, you know, $12, $14 burger, which is super deluxe. And then there's a camp that is definitely... Um, the ground meat that you buy in the supermarket. Well, I wouldn't say that. What I would say is like, you know, then there's a a group of people that, you know, say the best burger that they've ever had is at some greasy spoon Mm -hmm. somewhere in the Midwest that cost them a dollar 50. And I think the interesting thing that those two burgers have in common is the fact that they're both really fatty. I mean, if you're getting Mm -hmm. a really cheap burger, it's obviously has a lot more fat ground into it because of the way the packing industry works. Like that's their Mm -hmm. thing that they're trying to get rid of is all this fat and you can't sell it by itself or, and make any money off it. You make make a lot more if you can grind it into the burger meat. We actually talked about that yesterday. I mean, they, uh, the times wrote a really good, what I liked about that E. coli piece that they did is they really broke it down to the price repeatedly throughout the article and that the fat, like the trim, I mean, we always get for commodity, right? you know, like with the pork. So any place that would buy the trim for even one (coughs) cent more, you know, so you get a burger with nine different, you know, from nine different places, Uruguay and all that, just to save those extra fats. Hello, our third... Co-host is here, Shauna. Hello. Who actually, I saw your uh, video on um, butchering. That was a cool video you sent. Yeah. Um, no, it was fun. It was a lot of fun to do. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah, I got to check that out. So, right. um, Tom, tell us. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to bump into you as you were, you know, doing construction on the front of your new storefront. And I was like amazed a that i now have a zombie backup you know to my own house because it was like a vast amazing place and i was wondering if maybe you could break it down for our listeners like the various components of this like multifaceted community business of yours um yeah so the uh the new project slash anti-zombie fortress that we're building (laughs) right now uh is uh going to be called the brooklyn kitchen labs it will house um our butcher shop, the meat hook inside, but uh, oh, the meat hook. The meat hook. That's a great name. <laughs> yeah, really, Tom. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a it's a seven thousand square foot facility. It's going to wow. have five thousand square feet that will be open to the public, and two thousand square feet of um, office and uh, refrigeration, <laughs> uh, office and production space, and uh, basically, you know. It's on Meeker Avenue uh, in North Williamsburg, and you'll walk in the front door. Um, we have a, a massive uh, glass roll-up, and you'll come in either through that when it's sunny, or you'll come in through the, the door on the side, and you come up a ramp, and you'll see the daily specials on chalkboards that are inset into uh, these walls that have uh, the meat hook and the Brooklyn Kitchen logos, and then you'll immediately see off to your right our uh, bulk room, where we'll be offering... Uh, Bulk local grains, uh, legumes, olive oil, stuff like that. Obviously, the olive oil is not local. Um, we're all, gonna... all with wood, right? That had, you had found actually in the basement. You recycled no, that. Actually, yeah. The, the bulk room is, is clad with the f- floorboards. Um, I'm not sure how old the floorboards are, but I do know that they were fastened to the second story floor with uh, hand-forged square nails. So <laughs> cool. They're pretty old, and yeah. we, we really couldn't bring ourselves to uh, throw them out in our incredibly wonderful and insane uh, welder. Um, this guy named Macumbo um, was like, man, you can't throw those out. You should put them on the uh, side of the bulk room and, you know, 
uh, rub them down with some oil and they'll look amazing. And so that's what we did. We recycled the uh, planks from the second floor. Way so that, to go. That's what you'll see when you that's walk cool. in to the right. And then once you enter into the space up the ramp, you'll see um, the sales floor will have, uh, you know, uh, you know, your typical or well, not you'll you'll see your atypical uh, vast arrangement of uh Kitchen, uh, kitchen, you know, cooking goods and supplies. And then uh, if you go straight back, you'll see the um, counter of our butcher shop, which is um, about uh, 30 feet wide. And we have a great big, huge walk-in. What's the um, actual material for the cutting? Or like, what do people, is it wood? Or, I mean, where do you cut your meats? Like, what will people see? On what surface do you cut? Or do your butchering like in front of people? Well, the, the butchering uh, is going to actually take place behind the counters, but you'll be uh, behind the coolers where, where the meat will be displayed. But we're going to do all of our butchering on an uh, eight foot by three foot uh, John Boo's um, butcher block uh, table that we had custom made for us. Wow! And who's John Boo's? John Boo's is a really famous, um, like the the highest quality and most famous producer of butcher block hmm. um, in the United States. Today, anyway. Where is he? You know where's the? I mean, is it East Coast or? I believe it is Illinois, but uh, I actually didn't. I wasn't involved in the ordering of that. I just like told Mm -hmm. them how big and how tall I wanted it, and and someone else ordered it. But uh, I I think they're in the Midwest. If I Ohio makes sense. Um, So, Dom, you're going to get like whole animals into your establishment. Yeah, exclusively whole animals. And you'll be breaking them down into the primal cuts. Yes. And then you're also, you're going to have a teaching component there too, right? Right. So that's that's basically once once you come in and you see the butcher shop and everything, off to the left is a 1,200 square foot teaching kitchen, which is two stories tall. It's a big um, brick cube of exposed brick. It's a really beautiful room. It's got skylights and... uh, uh, that will have that's that's what we're calling lab number one, and that will have a uh, you know a full teaching kitchen uh, with a great big island where you know everyone in the class can sit around the island on stools and watch you know the the cooking demonstration or the the butchering demonstration as it were. Uh-huh. So uh, you're going to be teaching cooking and butchering. It's not just going to be exclusively butchering, right? And and uh-huh. and I will not be the only one person teaching classes. Yeah. Obviously, we're going to be bringing people in uh, from throughout the Brooklyn food community to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, chefs and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, m- makers and, you know, what Millicent source from, uh, egg. Yeah, actually she's, she's not, she just egg. left. Right. She just left. She's actually going to go, uh, join Dennis's, uh, mm-hmm. group of pirates over at, uh, the Roebling tea room. But, uh, she was originally from Queens highway, but she, um, likes to call that sort of thing. The, the wee tinker, um, <laughs> so we're going to have a lot of wee tinkers in there teaching a lot of really, um, bizarre things, uh, including beer brewing. We're also going to be the only, uh, beer brewing supply that you can get to by, uh, tr- by train in the five boroughs. There is one out in, uh, in Queens, but you can only get to it by car. Say, say what is that? Beer brewing? Beer brewing and winemaking supplies. We're going to have a full range mm. of that. Oh, wow. And we're also micro brew, like people who brew at home and all yeah. that, they can buy all their equipment. Right, exactly. And we're going to have, uh, oh. Garrett Oliver, um, from Brooklyn Brewery right. come Great in and, guy. uh, yeah, he's really amazing. He's going to come in and he's going to teach some, uh, beer pairings with food um and we'll be doing that in concert with a with a yet to be unnamed with- chef from the neighborhood and we're also going to be having one of the brewmasters from Brooklyn Brewery teaching brewing classes as well as um people who have been doing uh you know uh, the homestyle beer brewing for mm-hmm. you know 10 or 15 years we're going to get a lot of those kind of people as well to teach classes beer goes so well with them um, interesting garrett and his tastings you know that he used to do for slow food you know he would say you know people always talk about how wine like cuts against or contrasts with food whereas beer it like goes along with it right you know? it, it like harmonizes with it it's not in a it's Contra, not at a 90 pop, degree yeah, angle exactly it. Yeah. it works better yeah. yeah we well, you guys have interesting beers at your place. Um, yeah, they change. They change quite often. The our manager is a beer geek in a certain way, and he's. It's a tall one with the uh, fizz in it. It's served in the tall glass with the lemon. Is it? Champ? Oh, that's the um, the pen shandy. That's our actually our, our head bartender made a cocktail with a ginger infused uh, blue coat gin with mm-hmm. uh, a pilsner and. Um, and it's it's like two drinks in that one. It's very like champagne. It's uh, like a mimosa beer. It's cocktail. only a, it's only about a shot of the gin, so it's like one ounce of the gin with the beer. So oh. it's like having a 
So it's like a, with a, a beer. It's like a beer. like a like a fancy weird version of the the Caribbean of a shandy. Maker. <laughs> yes, okay. and, but it's really 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 good, and it's great summertime drinking. And two of those put you on your ass, <laughs> <laughs> and that's hard to, for that to happen <laughs> for me. That's too. saying a lot. <laughs> Well, we should uh, we should say we're sponsored by Hearst Ranch. This uh, who's great to, to sponsor us. Um, this is Bud. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, we are here at Roberta's, which is a great restaurant located at two sixty one Moore Street. And um, one of the things uh, we're talking about with Tom Mylan is teaching. And I know that you spent some time at a local butcher uh, here in New York State called Fleischer's. Yeah, they uh, they they taught me how to cut meat. I, I was uh, really good friends with Josh and Jessica, who owned Fleischer's, mm-hmm. uh, long before I, I ever got drafted to become a butcher. So I, it was pretty natural that they would, if I was going to learn how to do it, right. that they would teach me. So I uh, I basically moved in with them for about <laughs> a month and a half, and then uh, you know went to work every day and uh, learned the rudiments of butchering. You can't learn to be a butcher in a week, and, or I mean six weeks. But uh, and then I would go back. Uh, on my days off uh, and and learn whatever I could more um, but the 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 problem was is that you know obviously they could only teach me a, like a certain amount because I could only be up there for a, a brief period of time and so I was looking around the city to try to find butchering classes to get like sort of another perspective mm-hmm. on it. and there weren't any that were open to the public like yeah FCI and CIA and places like that but you had to be a student of that whole school to right yeah they're, they're, or cough up the big bucks to take a course well no 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 they, they there weren't literally no courses they, 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 yeah. they oh, it was just part of the overall they were not program. offer them to the public they were only for people who were on the career track the and paying yeah. 60 grand a year and like yeah. going through the whole program and that was actually the impetus for teaching the classes, which ended up being the impetus for the opening of the new lab. So. And well, um, I just want to ask one last question just while we're on this and then Kitty, but um, like <laughs> apprenticing, can you break down the grammar of that? Like what, um, like for butchering, how long does uh, a regular home chef need to study? I mean, what if people want to be able to buy maybe not whole carcasses, but let's say a whole bone in shoulder, you know, like a 19 pound piece and to learn how to process that stuff should they plan on a week or uh, a month or you well know? it really depends what they want to do i mean if you just want to bone out a shoulder like i mean you could you know you could come in and and you know take a you know one of our pig butchering 101 classes which you know it lasts for about two two and a half hours and come away with a a decent understanding of how to do it and yeah you'll have to like do a little bit of trial and error but ultimately it's a it's a pork shoulder it's not a it's it's not like you're trying to like uh, take out a tenderloin or you mm-hmm. know something like that. So you're not dealing with you're dealing with something that is a lot more inexpensive and a lot more sort of I'm not going to say durable, forgiving, not, forgiving. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, so that you can sort mm-hmm. of teach yourself. Um, you know, where it gets tricky are you know like the charcuterie elements of it. There's a lot of you know sort of subtleties of you know ways you can do things more right or more wrong, and you know like you're not going to obviously totally screw up sausage or something like that, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of ways that you could make your sausage better. And that takes a lot longer, you know, obviously learning to break down like beef and just like the whole process of handling, um, beef and lamb and stuff like that will take a, a, you know, a a significantly longer time. But, Mm -hmm. and how long did you apprentice at at, at Fleischer's more or less? It was like, you said six weeks, it was about six weeks. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of phone calls, you know, I would be like, I went once I got back and started, you know, being the butcher, like I, uh, would call them and be like, okay, so I have a pig in front of me. What was the first cut? How many vertebrae? <laughs> how, how many ribs do I count down? Yeah. But actually, the first pig that I broke down, I broke down before I actually went up there to start apprenticing, and I broke it down with a phone in one hand and a saw in the other. <laughs> Josh was on the other end, and he was like, all right, so five ribs in. All right, so cut there, and then just cut down, to yeah. the, you know, um, which was pretty hilarious. Funny. I, my first time butchering, I looked online. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was like... Where do I cut this again? My, the first half pig was t- the the that half pig you sent me. Oh yeah, I was destroyed you it. You butchered it. I butchered it. I destroyed it. <laughs> but then I was right like, way. okay, never again. <laughs> Let me figure out how to. What do I this. always was curious about, like when we would get, um, because when I re- was working in this butcher shop, we would get. I mean, I think cows are much more challenging. Than, oh yeah, um, they're just heavy. They're just big. They're heavy, yeah. but, and their pieces are really huge. So we would get in like an enormous piece of beef. 
that was included like the sirloin and then various other components and it would just be this big sort of cryovac anonymous piece of beef and somehow our head butcher paul knew exactly where to cut through the muscle to be able to turn it into sirloin steaks and then something else would be something else weird strip it was no it was further down because it wasn't part of the rib cage structure it was like over the ch- oh, it was over right the you're, you're, you're talking about the drop loin which is the sirloin yeah. and what's called the short loin which yeah. includes the tenderloin and the, and the yeah i mean the steaks no big deal i mean that you know yeah. that's pretty straightforward you see the ribs you see the, where it's you know but the sirloin you'd get this really big massive piece or the chuck roll is another one like i went to this demonstration a couple of years ago um that the national cattlemen's beef association put on trying to get chefs involved in using sort of offcuts and more of the chuck roll because that's what ends up being a lot of ground beef. You know, like you can only sell so much stew beef, right? Mm-hmm. So they were trying to, um, you know, teach chefs that you could uh, seam out these various different pieces and kind of sell them as like, um, you know, boneless short ribs or something like that. Now, they didn't cook up at all like traditional short ribs or sirloin tip or whatever you want to call it. They were challenging pieces to work with. And um, so they had four or five different chefs uh, come in. They had Steve Schmoller from uh, Cleveland, who was sort of the MC. He was, uh, what was it called, Chef Direct? Or what did he have? Um, he had something like that, yeah. For Cisco, And he's right? the one who's doing, yeah, he's the one who's doing that crop uh, that crop scene in uh, Cleveland and Columbus, where he's, yeah. he's, at, he's gotten all these regional farmers connected with Cisco and then, collect, and oh, then connected those to local restaurants so that... Um, you know, it raises the sort of agricultural uh, money scene for basically all the local just guys. gets them to redirect their truck for like three hours a week, and they can yeah. do all this good. It's amazing. Exactly, it's a phenomenal program. Um, but anyway, so <clears throat> so they had all these different pieces of meat, and the thing that was that struck me was that you know you it's there's more to it than just cutting out these rib steaks or uh, those New York strip steaks, or it's like when you see these really large pieces of meat that weigh about thirty or forty pounds, like the chuck roll is a big piece. Um, you know, you got to figure out, it's not just obvious where you seam that out. It's like a lot of times you're cutting across um, the nerves and across the tendons. Well, you just have to know where everything is. You have to like have the gestalt of the animal in your, in your brain. And you have to understand the, um, like the, the musculature. I mean, you have to be an anatomist to like, to do that sort of like, you know, if I hate the term artisan butchery because it means like it, it, to me, it sounds like, Oh yeah. Like, I'm way more special than like it somebody else. Guy and stop and yeah, stop. it demeans other butchers, and it's like you know, it's you know, it's it's a an amazing vocation, and we should all be thankful that there's people out there doing it. But anyway, but I mean that that you know, if you want to be an artisan butcher, you have to know where all of those seams lie, and you have to be an anatomist. That said, you know, you can also you know cut everything up on a bandsaw. So it's it's yes. like the thing about butchering is it's as complicated as you want to make it hmm. or as simple as you want to make but it. when you cut it up on a bandsaw you're not necessarily going to get um you're going to get sort of a uh, a variety of meats within one piece of meat if you know what i mean right if you cut something on a bandsaw you could get a muscle that's running in one direction that's next to a muscle that's running in another direction or more importantly and find you're, something you're, that's going to end up not being able to be sliced in any way that's normal for a consumer Right. I mean, there's basically everything that you see at like, you know, um, the typical grocery store these days. I mean, you know, about 90 percent of it is just cut on a bandsaw Mm -hmm. and just thrown in a tree. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and and what you're getting when you get a a slice of, you know, um, you know, you were talking about the chuck earlier when you get a slice of chuck. Yeah, you get the there is the, the slice of chuck eye in the middle of that. But around that you get. All these tough cuts, so the bycatch, right? Of the bandsaw. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, and the problem is, is like, yeah, it was really easy to cut that up, but you're not like the only part that's going to be good and tender and tastes like a ribeye mm-hmm. is going to be the part in the on the very inside, and all this ancillary stuff around it should have been made in the trimmed stew beef. off and made into stew beef or but braised. It, yeah. Are the but breeders different? Like, do you ever notice that one farmer will bring you a cow that's just a different kind of cow and its muscle musculature is different, or you know, it surprises you just because of the shape? And size of it? Yeah. Like, every breed is a little bit different. In the United States, we're obviously very 
um, sort of British oriented, like most of the the genetics that are out there in America are like, you know, some sort of version of the, the, the British steer, whether it be, you know, the... Black Angus or well, Hereford or... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> those are the two main breeds, Devin. right? Devon. Um, I mean, now you're seeing a lot more stuff coming in, like the Devons, they're bringing in a lot of Devon genetics and crossing that up because... They were never, you know, especially when you're talking about grass finish stuff, they were never diluted. They were never bred, like, to uh, finish on grain. So they, they're they're bringing in a lot of these other genetics. But, I mean, the one cow that uh, steer that looked significantly different than any of the other ones I'd cut up was actually a, a French breed called a limousine. Oh, um, I've heard of those. I've heard of yeah, those. Limousine. Yeah, and they have really, really wide loins. Like the the loins are like probably a third wider. It's like a limo versus a regular car. Yeah, you know, I actually wrote a piece. They got a big back <clears throat> because they're using limousine for veal, and they and the woman who was raising the Strauss family, which was raising really fantastic meadow raised veal, mm-hmm. they were they had gone through hundreds of different you know cows to figure out which breed was going to be the best. And they used the limousin veal because the veal is so outstanding. But she said that the cow, the full-grown cow was not as great eating as the veal. Well, to be fair, the one that I got was actually like the, the, the people that raise it, obviously um, it was their first or second year raising mm-hmm. them. And uh, there's a pretty steep learning curve. If you're trying to do stuff exclusively with grass. There's a lot of tinkering mm-hmm. with genetics. There's a lot of pasture management that is super critical there's a lot of finishing items that are really critical um so i have to say that the animal that we got wasn't the most outstanding steer that i've ever seen but i that's what i noticed was it just tougher the beef um no it was uh, when they do something wrong i was gonna ask (laughs) what happens okay okay, so the biggest thing that people who do grass do wrong is they don't get their animals enough food or they've been weaned off their mother too early um, if, if animals are, aren't allowed to wean off naturally, and that's a process that takes eight to ten months, mm-hmm. not all of their stomachs develop. And that means that if their stomachs aren't developed, they're not going to be able to convert that grass as efficiently um, mm-hmm. into you know, energy, muscle, fat. Um, so that's one place that they can screw up, and the other place is you know, just having poor pasture or like pasturing them incorrectly. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it... it what that means is they're not getting enough food. But Tom, it, what, okay, sorry, go ahead. Um, and once, <laughs> and if and if they Very aren't putting on a pound and a half a day, they, something's wrong. Well, no, they they actually switch over to this different type of metabolism. Oh. And so when you get that that grass fed steak that is really lean mm. and it's got this weird dark color and it tastes gamey, you know, um, it's because the the, the the steer was actually not getting enough nourishment and they had sort of reverted back to their sort of you know, uh, aboriginal, survival. Yeah, oh, their survival metabolism. Interesting. Where they're not that answers f- so many questions it for does, me. Right? Yeah. Me too. I've gotten. I've worked with many different cuts of grass-fed beef, and I've sometimes I'm like, why is this one so different than? The, I mean, I couldn't understand. That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> and yet, Epiphany. I love. I mean, I've had grass-fed beef that I think is just so much better than any of the corn-finished beef, just well, because it tastes really beefy. Seems like the compromise that people. Um, the most of the chefs that I interact yes. with, they're just like, we like grass fed. We understand that. We need to get on that kick. But like at the same time, could you corn finish it? We I love mean, the corn finish because it makes the meat sweeter and it gives it more marbling and therefore it's more tender. Is that all it is? Is it a taste thing at the end or is it a fattening up thing? It's or a fattening up thing. Do you not believe in corn finishing? You believe in grass fed all the way? Oh, no, no. I'm not I'm not one of those like, oh, it has to be grass fed or it's shit. Okay. Like, you know, I'm not a snob about that sort right. of thing. Every the, the thing of it is is like everything can be done right and everything can be done wrong. Like when mm-hmm. we're talking in broad generalizations, we're saying a grain finished animal versus a grass finished animal, but there are so many different quality levels. I mean, obviously, you know, there's you know uh, just because something is you know pork that's fed grain, you know, there's obviously there's the incredibly crap stuff. That you can get, or there's the stuff mm-hmm. that you guys sell, right. you know. And well, actually, I don't know if our animals eat the the proper grains. I mean, in a weird way, I think more animals that we think of in America are actually eating the McDonald's equivalent, you know. But for <laughs> animal food, well, for commodity right. pigs, they're fin- you- they're eating a lot of um, leftovers from distilleries. Well, you, you know, know there's well, like that right. the we mash have so much from distilleries just with the breeds and selling the stuff. I mean, if we were to think about the feed, like we're probably a couple of years before we can even say how are we going to get organic grains. I mean, it's just so 
much. I just sometimes I fear our animals are not eating as well as they should be, mm-hmm. but that we're years away Do you away know from, what they're eating, though? Yeah, I mean, it's the same stuff, you know, that the feedlots, you know, exist, you know, with occasional exceptions. But, you know, I think our next big thing is but, to, yeah, what but are they eating? Yeah, feedlots are feeding animals like candy. And, I mean, if you're to believe what the press has written, I don't know. I'd love to give them an opportunity to refute that. But uh, supposedly they're eating a lot of, eating, you know, refuse from well, human tables. I mean, I still think they're just probably eating all maybe a genetically modified, you know, thing that if you trace back 50 years to Monsanto, I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh, something I don't hear or read about that often is like, what are the bulk of our animals eating and what are the sustainable ones eating? You know, I think mm-hmm. probably here in New York State, it's a lot better. Um, but in the Midwest, you're just so reliant on that source of feed, you know, well, that and also the volume little. of the animal, the volume of numbers is so much greater than they are in the small farmers in the in the northeast and the and the atlantic states but tom to go back one for one second to the um to the issue that you brought up yeah. about weaning animals i know I'm, let's get into the real so, nitty-gritty yeah. here <laughs> the grammar you you really just, just real quick what i was actually saying with the like the uh you know when i started talking about your pigs and everything everything's complicated obviously your pigs are a lot better than like pigs that are and they're fed more or less the same thing, but your pigs are a lot better because they're yeah. raised differently. They're different breeds, whatever. Everything's complicated. There is no yeah, like, oh, pork know. tastes like this. It's like no, there's a there's a spectrum, and the same yeah. thing with grain finished, and the same thing with grass finished. There's a way to do it right, and there's yeah. a way to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, most people out there are doing it wrong. Well, anyway, when you it. when you wean an animal too early, which you were saying yeah. has an impact on it the has overall a huge impact um, finish. In in the commodity beef market, how do they? I mean, they they surely they're weaning their animals way too early. Or no, they they're leaving them. them. Don't they hand feed them? Or they they they, they, they don't feed them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the commodity beef industry, I, I doubt it. I think that they don't they they take them away from the mother like within the first three days. I actually don't. I don't know, know that much about the industrial cow calf operation. I do know that 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 that's so basically the process is you have an animal that is at a cow calf operation for about you know between. Eight. Eight to ten months, yeah. and then it's moved to the feedlot, and it's usually slaughtered around sixteen months old. Yes, um, that's mostly because they can only live for about six months on the feedlot. The way that, they're, that yeah. it's done, they're so unhealthy. Yeah, well, they're also, so unhealthy that their life expectancy on the feedlot is about six months. But also, they've reached the size that is a pro. I mean, they, one of the reasons why the feedlot thing came into yeah that the feedlot came into 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 play was because they wanted to create a consistent product that was the same size so that when they were cutting it up for supermarket chains and stuff like that, they got the same yield off of every animal. I mean, right. I, I heard you know, that's that, part um, of the industrialization process. Animals of, were eaten of, a lot smaller, even though they were produced in smaller numbers and in more places that back in the day, like in the 1900s, for instance, they liked smaller animals. They would just kill them before they reached the sizes that they reach now. Is that true? Do you know? I just heard uh, I someone say that, that. I don't know that much about like the age at which animals were slaughtered. If anything, I like the things that I've read led me to believe that um, if an animal was slaughtered for like you know for steaks or for you know beef that would be sold and not just consumed on the farm, that they would actually grow them out significantly older than we're doing now. And bigger, they weighed more, or they weighed the same. Um, they like, they would probably um, they would probably weigh the same because actually we've been breeding our animals bigger and bigger. Um, the Angus that we have in the United States is about a third bigger than the than the smaller Angus that you'll see in the British Isles. Like most of the British beef are you know if you get one that has a carcass weight of more than you know hot weight carcass weight of you know more than seven hundred pounds, you've got a real big one. Mm-hmm. Um, in Britain, but here it's more you know, like thirteen, right? Um, the biggest one I've ever cut up was a eleven thirty, and that was that was a, a, a black Angus. Um, but that's the whole thing, not just one side. Yeah, that's the yeah whole the thing. whole beast. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. the whole steer. That's that's the slaughtered hot weight. Like after so it's going, hanging, going hanging back weight. a little bit, you said that you don't have a preference of grass fed to corn fed to, or you do have a preference. You're just. Not really. No, I, I, I don't. I am not a snob about it. I, I definitely have my predilections. I do. My my grass finish guy that I have, um, I mean, they, they are like white trash Kobe. I mean, they are insane. And he's just the best guy at raising <laughs> animals. Kobe. He's the best guy at raising beef that I have. 
um, right now. I'm sure at some point in the you know near future, I'll get a grainfish guy that maybe can do it even more insane than he can. Um, but that's he's my favorite guy right now. But before that, before I got him, my favorite guy was was grainfished. Uh-huh. Um, so. It's it's really you know I, like I was trying to, the point I was trying to make you know was that we're speaking broad generalizations when we say grass mm-hmm. and grain it's really like what's the end quality how good is your farmer at raising an animal to be the best it can be and like and that's always going to be my favorite is the best animal with the best genetics which is with it which and the animal that is um, raised to the proper weight. You know the proper. So you're not doing local. It's terroir. Oh, no, we're doing local. Just, terroir just and local. Tech we war. only do local. Okay, so, I only so deal I, with so farms that I've been to. Only farms that you've been to. But yeah. isn't it true that grass-fed beef in New York it can't be grass-finished because we don't have grass all year? So uh, it's finished on what's called uh, haylage or baleage, which is um, if you've ever been driving around upstate and you see those big round rolls of. Yeah. Plastic wrapped hay. Mm -hmm. So they wrap them in plastic and they start to ferment um, in the same way, same way that you would ferment, you know, grains to brew beer. And it frees up a lot more of the nutrients and there's a lot higher sugar content. Uh, It tastes better to the animal, so they want to eat more of it. And so in the same way that you finish, you know, uh, beef on grain, you know, you, like they might be out on pasture and then you switch them to grain to finish them. The same is true of finishing um, these grass-fed animals and they are finished on this on this haylage. Um, when there's not grass out, they will be just fed like regular hay until they reach their finishing weight. Uh-huh. No. Does that answer your question? No, it does answer my question. Okay. I'm just wondering, it, but are, it, so that's basically all grass-fed beef is finished on the haylage. It should be. Okay. Not everybody does it. And what what do they do? What are they doing? They just they're just feeding it whatever they're feeding it and decide it's big enough and then they send it to the slaughterhouse. Those are guys that are doing it wrong. Uh-huh. Their animals aren't as good as they could be. Okay, if that makes any sense. What are the breeds that are are most raised the most here in the New York area? Is that also Black Angus and and Hereford? Those seem to be the two. Or are there? I was hoping that I don't actually know the answer, but like, are there a more diversity of breeds here than, let's say, in the Midwest? Oh yeah, yeah I would absolutely. think so. Yeah, because yeah. they it's so the close Italian, to England. What is the Italian breed that's Chianino, so popular? Yeah, Chianino. yeah, Chianino and Piedmontese also and the Piedmontese, is the other one. Yeah, yeah, which has like a double muscle gene, which makes it tender. Hmm. Kind hmm. of thing. With the See? other one is the Belgian blue, a <laughs> oh, pork really. Yeah, beef we buy by the you know case like everybody else because uh-huh. we could never move all the ground. Right. Although we have been talking about a burger shop up in Harlem with Joe Bastianich. Really? Um, yeah, that would be like an educational nonprofit. But until that happens, would that would you mean meaning that you would employ local youth to mm-hmm. run it? it? Would be like a Jamie Oliver experiment. Remember when he was running those kitchens in yes, Britain, which absolutely. I just thought was so brilliant of him. And we were wanting to be. I mean, they hadn't haven't decided what to do, but like the placement firm you know like heritage foods would help those graduates like Mm -hmm. if they had been there for six months or whatever you know find jobs you know in cities where they would want to live or would you do that through the harlem children's zone do you know that group well i mean really we just want to be part of it yeah (laughs) they might decide that we can't be so uh no i think uh jeffrey canada would definitely go for this idea yeah i think so yeah Anyway, let's go back to Tom and talking about the Brooklyn um, Kitchen Labs. Yep. I love that it's labs. So who else is going to be in there with you, or is it just you use, use guys, you and your partner, Harry? And Well, you have like, your assistant butcher who's <laughs> been with you for a while. Yeah, now, we right? have we have a real crew of people. So basically, uh-huh. um, the, you know, the, the, the core of uh, the labs are going to be, you know, uh, Harry Rosenblum and his wife, Taylor, um, and then... My wife is actually going to be working. Uh, she's working uh, for the labs um, as a media developer. Annalise, the Brooklyn-based uh, yeah, founder as exactly. well. exactly. Annalise Griffin, the Brooklyn-based founder, and my wife. Um, yeah. And uh, in addition to that... We can give her applause. <laughs> you, you just got married. <laughs> Our applause yeah. sign is a little late for the crowd. So <laughs> Uh, and then uh, there's me, and then there's uh, uh, Brent, who's my um, my my number one guy. Who, he, we, yeah, we've been. He he uh, came up from Richmond, and I got him a job at Diner, and uh, I actually even 
found his apartment for. Wow. So he's like my indentured you servant. Um, and then he, he's actually holding an umbrella right outside of Roberta's. <laughs> yeah. Window yeah. Window. yeah. Right. And then his pedicab. And then, <laughs> and then we, we brought up uh, um, Brent's best friend, Ben Turley, uh, who uh, joined us at Daughters and is now uh, just uh, he just quit Daughters and he's joining us at the Meat Hook. Uh-huh. Um, and and then, so you're from Virginia? Is that how you knew? No, oh, you just no, they happened uh, to be. Brent actually um, the, wanted to move to New York. He <laughs> happened upon an ad on Craigslist for a line cook position at Egg, hmm. and he came up and talked to George Well at Egg, and um, uh, Brent was working at Belmont Butchery in uh, in Richmond, and. Uh, he was like, yeah, I work, you know, at this butcher shop and I'm really interested in the fact that you guys are doing, you know, some some hogs here and stuff like that. He's like, well, we do one every other week or something like that, but you should really go talk to my friend Tom. And so he sent him over and uh, I was like, you know, we went out and had some drinks and I was like, dude, move up here. Like, let's do this. Let's let's. And uh, that's the the rest is basically history. And so that that's our that's my connection to Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom, let's let's talk for a second about the trend of the DIY home butcher. Yeah. I mean, um, I, you know, there was that article in the Times a couple of weeks ago, Patrick, that you and I talked about that Kim Severson wrote about how, um, you know, it's gotten so cool to be able to do your own. And and um, what are people going to be buying? I mean, what, what do they think they're going to be doing? They're and gonna... why butchering and not? Uh, you know, why not just plain or, cooking? You know what I mean. It just seems like butchering <laughs> is an unusual. Well, is it, are you are you aiming your classes towards home cooks, or is it for professionals also? Uh, we're going to be offering two different tracks. So we're going to do a sort of like butchering one hundred and one, which is not hands on. It's just going to be like, you know, we'll start the beginning of the class with a, you know, a side of pig or a whole lamb, um, and then you know butcher it as we like talk about all the different you know, issues involved with, you know, uh, local meat production, blah, blah, blah. You know, just sort of like proper meat in general. Um, and then we're also going to be offering a um, applica- by application only professional development track where you will pay a certain amount of money to have uh, one-on-one butchering lessons with us that would be, that are going to be really focused um, around what it is that the person taking the class wants to learn. So there, mm-hmm. we don't have like a sort of pat class, like every class is going to Yikes. be... Yikes, so if Fleischmann's is charging 10000 I fear to find out what uh, the one-on-one class will cost. Yeah, Fleischer's is, is, is hooking up ten grand a, a session. <laughs> right. I thought that for, was it's, it's a good no, for it's, it's, like six, three weeks? it's for six weeks. Six weeks. It's for, for six weeks. This is what I said. Including, I including your board, I guess. It, yeah. I think it makes sense. I mean, when, you know, when I talked to Josh, it makes sense. They, if you really it's learn a, it, yeah. If you really learn it. I, when I was in culinary school, they didn't have butchering classes. And that's all I wanted to do was learn how to butcher for myself just because I like doing it so much. So yeah. there's there's really nobody. And now you are going to be doing it here in Brooklyn. But there's nobody else really teaching that. And I don't even think in culinary schools, I don't I don't really know what's going on there, but that they're really teaching the essential really important things about butchering. I mean, the the problem with teaching butchering is you need to have access to a lot of animals to cut up. Yeah. Um, And and then then some place to sell them out. And an outlet to get rid of them. And if they, you know, if if somebody, you know, who's just learning, you know, screw, like cuts right down the middle of a pork loin and like completely ruins it. What what are you going to do? Then the restaurant's like... Right. So, I mean, there's a difference between what Josh is teaching and what we're going to do. Like, we're going to offer very focused things. Like... Mm. You know, say you're, uh, you know, you're a sous chef or you're a line cook, and you you just like decide that I want to learn how to break down a pig because, you know, whatever your restaurant sends you there, or you just want to do it for yourself, and you have a very clear idea of like what you are going, what your what the end um, is, uh, then we'll, you know, sort of teach you in like one or two installments, like as much as we can in as short a period of time, teach you exactly what you want to know. Um, whereas Josh is actually training people to be all around butchers. So we're doing really focused stuff. He's doing really broad stuff. The broad stuff, like to, you know, learn how to be a butcher, you have to cut up, you know, a, a big bee butcher. Like you need to cut up a lot of animals. And the reason why it costs 10 grand is because he has to like bring in a lot of animals for these people to cut up mm-hmm. right. so that they get that the practice. But if you're, you know, somebody who can't afford ten grand and can't afford to take six weeks off, but you, but you want to like learn enough 
to be dangerous, then you'll come to us. <laughs> so um, that's funny. To be dangerous. Now tell us why butchering. I mean, of all of the artisan crafts, I mean, how do you explain this renaissance? Or is it really not as big a renaissance as we think nationally? Yeah, is this and, just like a media construct? Or is I don't know. I live in happening? a strange little bubble. You called, do. Yeah. <laughs> New York City. Manhattan. Called, uh, no, called Brooklyn. Because yeah. believe me, none of this. I live in Manhattan. And if I had my druthers, I'd be out here in Brooklyn in terms of the food scene. It's so much more vibrant here. Yeah. I mean, Manhattan is kind of a dead zone now. So, so you're saying really... it's a bubble phenomenon, just to local to our but metropolis? But I see this no, no, around the country. I mean, I was talking to the Narragansett yeah. Creamery, and there's like they cannot fill the demand for people who for that's classes, still a bubble though. For people who San Francisco to learn how to make and Manhattan. And no, Brooklyn this is, is in Wakefield, Rhode Island. It's, it's, oh, okay. it's, an, it's definitely an urban phenomenon, uh, mostly because I think that people that live in rural places. Like probably have a butcher shop, especially for deer no. and all the right, stuff. Exactly. State inspected, right? You they have, don't need it as much. Upstate, right. you have that for deer, but you it's, don't have. It's a, not so other and fascinating, in right? And that's exotic. the thing. It's in like it, it's the exoticism that I think is the draw, and you. And <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop. Um, yeah, it is. She's like, yes, please do. It, it is like that that our quota, that otherness, you know, that exoticism um, that I think only really appeals to people that are in urban environments. And I mean, you know, not to get like um, to Richard Florida on the whole thing, but there's a lot of people out there who work these, um, you know, work in cubicles, and they're you know they do this one thing, um, and they you know they're a cog in the machine and you know, they don't really maybe understand like what it is that they do exactly, or mm -hmm. they don't do something from the beginning to the end. So I think they that's see the some, problem is that yeah. it's part of a, of a bigger sort of continuum in which they're just a little piece of it. Whereas when you are actually, one of the things in that article by Kim Severson, which I'm sure you read was, no, I didn't. Oh, well anyway, it was a really good like, article. It was interesting, but at the same time I sort of wanted to puke because it was like this person that she was quoting extensively was saying, well, I really want to. I want to be part of the. Yeah, thank you. I really want to be part of the process of like looking the animal in the eye. Oh, that. I gotta eat meat. I, I want to, you know, have looked the pig yep. in the eye and know that mm -hmm. I've, you know, just plugged it with a twenty-two. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't need that experience. I mean, I don't. And well, well but you have a, a lot of people. But that's part of the experience. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. Um, no, I mean it really depends but on I the think person. That's a lot what of drives people, a lot of this. Is what yeah, I'm a lot saying. of people have like this sort of like weird like ex-vegetarian liberal guilt where they're mm -hmm. just like, well, exactly. if I'm going to eat meat, then I want to take responsibility for that. I'm not going to like you know shit on anybody's plate about that. Like, I, <laughs> I mean, Ooh, uh, nice <laughs> yeah. I, but on the other hand, like, yeah, you're right. It is. It, it gets a little smug and it gets a little weird. It does. It's. I think it's a little weird. I mean, it's. I think it's good for people to recognize that their food does not come in the plastic tray. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that, and that raising animals is uh, time-consuming, costly, and extremely hard work. That's another thing that I think that most people don't recognize about yeah. animal husbandry and agriculture in general. I but, actually have a question about the future of agriculture, like on that level. If, if I mean, I've been wanting to ask this question all day. But um, like what the future we have had talked about vertical farming and roof gardens and all that. But what would the meat scene look like 300 years from now? I mean, if we did regionalize or localize, like how do you think, uh, you know, what breeds would we raise? How would we raise them? What animals are best adapted to urban environments? Like if we really got bad and we really had to eat from our immediate area. Like what would that? So you're talking about like like you know if, zombie land, right? Yeah. He's so if, if in the if in the the uh, the year three thousand we we're living in these after sort the of apocalypse. like yeah after the apocalypse <laughs> we're we're living in like uh, these sort of like quasi agricultural urban areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously everything would go you know, back to, you know, smaller animals. Yeah, I was going to say cows. Like, would we be still eating beef as much? Oh, yeah. No, we would eat beef, but we would eat, you know, like we would be eating all these like really tiny pocket steers that, you know, they have all over Britain, you know, like. A, Is that like the pocket beagle? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> um, so small you can fit it in your well, pocket? Is that where it comes pants, from? That's right. That's... Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there, <laughs> there, there is a whole like genetic strain of um british uh beef animals that you know i, I saw uh 
and a two no twenty month old carcass. I mean, it hadn't been hanging around for twenty months. It was twenty months old when it was slaughtered, mm-hmm. which is fairly mature. And the yeah. entire animal weighed three hundred seventy five pounds. It was wow. a steer, wow. and it was a Scottish Highland, and it was a particularly small subset of the of the Scottish. It's like Highland. smaller Those look than cool. a pony. Right? Isn't that smaller than a pony? I think it depends what <laughs> depends pony you're what talking pony. about. Well, tell us about your pony. <laughs> well, I mean, a full-size horse is about 1,500 pounds, right? A pony is about 850. On Ooh, the what hook? about horse on the hoof? Meat. We're talking oh, yeah. about like we're, we're talking like this Dressed. is this is gutted, yeah. Okay, just yeah. so why not horse meat? Would we be eating horse meat we, if it Americans came to Americans don't want to eat horse meat because we're such a horse centric? I mean, I went to Montreal and it's there right next to everything else. Like, what's they, it taste like? I haven't eaten Sweet. yet. I smuggled some back across the border and. Uh, I put it in the freezer because I was too busy to cook it. But uh, it's, it's I, every, rather sweet. Yeah, everything I've I've heard of is is it's very similar to beef. It's more or less beef. tougher. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, not all yes. horses Depends. are created yeah, equal. Exactly. I mean, maybe we maybe they're raising meat horses. They're there. not yeah. thoroughbred ones. Yeah. No. When I was a uh, fourteen, we lived in France for a year, hmm. and we tried horse a couple of times, and. It was, um, as I recall, I remember going like, ew, but I, because being a carnivore, I ate it anyway. And it was, um, I think I remember my mom having to braise it. I don't recall eating it as a steak. And it was a little bit sweeter. It depends than, the cut. Yeah, too. the cut yeah. depends. I mean, every animal is like tender in the same place and tough in the but, same place. Um, I just wanted to remind you guys of this piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday mm. by Jonathan Safran for about dog meat. And why? And to speak to your point about how Americans, there are certain things Americans just won't go to like right. tom are you out of labrador of again <laughs> no more golden retriever just golden retriever exactly. then i want a nice tender scotty <laughs> no let's not joke let's not <laughs> let's not go full well, re- when i, I when i do the suckling pigs when we do the suckling pigs at work i it's the same size as my dog oh and i'm man. just like yeah. and, I, and, and when i'm petting my dog so and i'm like oh this would be your hand and like and it's the same exact size so i had a moment of like where I was doing the suckling pigs, we'd do porchetta, and I was like, you know, I just can't do this anymore. I was like, I need to train somebody else because I was like having these Flashbacks. difficult like things of You're like waking dealing. up in your sleep yeah. with a knife over <laughs> but your there dog. There's so My many dog. other cultures where dog meat, for instance, is, as uh, Four points out in the article, dog meat is Good a very them. regular part of their <laughs> diet, and right. horse meat being a regular part of the diet. Who's of the, the diet? Uh, who eats dog? Um, Chinese, Koreans, a lot them. of Asian people, well, and, and some and getting, Africans. Getting back to you know what you were talking about with like people. what is like you know the the urban animal going to yeah. be like? I mean, you know, in you know uh, you know Uruguay and places like that, um, guinea pigs are actually yeah. raised like pigs, and they have a little like every kitchen has a little square hole in the floor where they sweep all their all their scraps, you know, um, down on the floor and kick them down into a hole where they have a guinea pig in there. Guinea pig. Eating Got- their scraps, converting that into meat, and then eating every... guinea pig. Jack, could you uh, Google the um, nutritional uh, benefits of guinea pig? Well, like actually, what here's it's a like? little piece right in, in here. Hawaiians ate dog brains and blood. Captain Cook ate dog. Captain Cook? Yeah, when he was on his... on his. It's been described as complex, gamey, buttery, and floral. Um, but where is the thing about the guinea pigs? A, a brief aside, you can actually walk to a supermarket from this location right now and buy a frozen guinea pig to eat. Just huh. FYI. Is and that actually, the one on there's Graham a place in or, Harlem um, where you can Humboldt? buy goats. Uh, or you're saying just in the neighborhood there are places that... Yeah, you, you can walk over to Food Bazaar and get a frozen yeah. guinea pig. Really? Yeah, you do guinea pig under a rock. Is the That's so Wall Street Journal, and, like, oh, with these niche animals, you know, what about dog? What, there's always an air of condescension, I think, you know, the food, the way Wall Street Journal deals with food. You know, they, they always bring up an absurdist side or a side that'll never really work. And anyway. Oh, well, oh I guess it was Katie McLaughlin's hey article about yes. Sorry to cut you guys off. Guinea pig meat is high in protein, low in fat and cholesterol, yeah, and is described really as being similar to rabbit and uh, some dark meat chicken. Yeah. Hmm. Rodents, according to Katie McLaughlin, rodents are anathema to good eating for most Americans, but in Ecuador and Peru, cooking a koi or guinea pig on a spit is a tradition akin to roasting a suckling pig, says Maricel Presilla, a chef and historian of Latin American food traditions. Basted with oil, cumin, garlic, and achiote, a red-hued seasoning, the guinea pig is served whole, complete with tiny teeth. That sounds actually really delicious. Ooh. It's kind of making right? me hungry for guinea pig. 
Do we eat teeth at all? What do we no, do? With... You don't eat teeth. There's no, no way to. Well, if you eat a whole. Can anything bird, be done to teeth? Sometimes eat the beak, right? Oh, we have one minute. Oh my God, we only have one minute left, Jack. Jack, well, wait, we can we go? Break. I know we <laughs> just talked for an hour. <laughs> that whole time is so much fun. Well, especially for you, latecomer. I know. I'm sorry. Just kidding. It's what okay, uh, was the L not working uh, again? The L was messed up, and I'm apartment hunting, so I had an appointment before here. Too. Uh, Where are you moving, Shauna? This in is the neighborhood, big news. maybe. Really? Oh, that's yep, nice. Humboldt in. Uh, um, for radio, right? That's why. <laughs> Humboldt and Skulls, I think it's called, and it's right behind a live poultry killing. Place. Let's How go. Excellent. There's a lot of live there's poultry a lot places of that, around so, here. Uh, well, there's it, one up in Harlem, in my you know, in my neighborhood on 125th and like um, Frederick Douglass Boulevard or something. Yeah, and they have goats, they have rabbits. Well, goat, that's a big one. I was and, I was wondering what you thought about goat and how much goat uh, breaking down you do. Because that seems like I know Bill Nyman's raising yeah, he's, goats. He's uh, Americans aren't really into eating goats, but Walmart. I'm hoping like because they have a Taste. really strong flavor. Um, goat is so good. They're but, delicious, but, but they're they have a lot of integument and like they're too coll- collagenous. I, it really depends. I mean, again, there's meat breeds and there's you know dairy breeds of goat, mm. and it really depends on what breed it is. I mean, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm hoping I'm really excited. We're we're going to start working with a, a halal slaughterhouse out in Ozone Park. Oh, nice! That uh, is going to be doing uh, local lamb and goat, and I'd, I really would like really to really local. Ed- yeah, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'd really like to educate our customers and get them to appreciate goat. I mean, how do you? How, so you're doing solely whole animals um, selling that. So how do you plan on? Selling the um, the lesser parts. The, yeah, the, the offcuts. Part, the I always wonder about that. Well, too. now that you're moving into we the neighborhood, Chana, they're hoping that you'll come by and <laughs> I'm yeah. going to do my part. Yeah, Tom, are you going to offer classes and how to like in addition to, to butchering? Like when somebody has cut up their you know their pig and they're and they're confronted with a, a chunk of pig that isn't really suitable for a chop or a roast. Right. Like, are you going to give them some recipes or how are they going well, to? Well, when, when do I that? teach my classes, I do you know give some you know I, I shoot off like some really quick recipe ideas for each and every part of the animal and, and just talk about the general way that you know this needs to be braised this needs to be roasted this needs to be cooked hot and fast um but we will be having more in-depth classes about you know uh we're going to do uh we actually teach a class that's just on cooking liver uh we're going to have cool. another one that'll be more like general offal including heart and kidney um and uh we have our sausage making class which is another way to you know eat those uh, right. cuts that aren't chops yeah bench uh, trim yeah yeah, cool. Cool. Well, well this is uh, this very has been interesting. Great. Tom, you'll have to come back. Yeah, I'd love this to. Well, especially when you fun. guys open you and open, you have specials yeah. and stuff like that. We should be <laughs> your when Brooklyn are you based. opening? When when is the opening? Uh, we are opening. God willing, uh, 2011. This <laughs> yeah, uh, no, uh, November 11th. Oh my God! So oh, that's, that's very right. soon. Dude, that's yeah, like that's that's why I'm away. covered in paint. So <laughs> your life's about to end, and you'll be there. 24 hours a day. I am already, already there 24 is. hours a <laughs> day. <laughs> I'm way, hoping to be there less once we like get it Is it like a open. restaurant opening, do you think? Um, yeah, because it's taken him forever to get his permits. And for, yeah, it's you know, exactly all the, the same, same problem. Uh, you're going to go a long time some. with no vacation, I bet. I mean, you're going to be just oh, no, 24-7. I'm, I'm going to take my real honeymoon in February. I, oh, yeah? yeah? That's right. That's a good time to We're, go. We've all, we've, we've all, you know, we know it's going to be a real drag. to get Not a drag, but it's going to be a lot of work to get this thing open. So we're all planning on taking little trips uh, in February and March when it's so cold and, it, you know, it's pretty slow. Um, just because we're all going to need to be recharged. We can't be burnt out. And from the butcher shop's perspective, people are going to be able to go in there. I mean, besides the fact they can buy the most beautiful kitchen equipment, right? right yeah. I mean, like knives, sets, and coffee and cups and all that. Yeah. Wow. Meat thermometers. But then from the meat side, they'll be able to order, I mean, order most of the parts of the cow and pig and chicken and lamb. Yeah, exactly. A- okay. Anything and everything. That a butcher would have. Um, yeah. Cool. It's just a matter of, of how much, because we get in the whole animal only, you know, an animal is only made up of so much shank or so much. Right. Yes, you there know, aren't an indefinite number of Is there of a schedule right that people can go to, like on a website, hey, we're bringing in two steer on Friday, so if you want the ribeyes, come by, or is there a newsletter that people could sign up to? No, to I mean, we're, we're, we ha- we're going to have um, a pretty steady rhythm. Like, the, okay. the animals are going to come in every Wednesday, and we'll have them broken down by the weekend. And, mm. you know, people can call in and just order what they want. And it's first come, first serve. It's like if you want it, you got to order it ahead of time. If you want to make sure that it's there. If not, if you come in and you want a flank steak but we don't have any, I'm happy to, like, steer you towards a flat iron or another uh, cut of meat that is going to be 
comparable that you can use in a lot the same way. What are your hours going to be? Uh, we're going to be open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Wow. Uh, Monday wow. through Friday. That's for the commuters out there. You know, it's hard to get back from the city and into Brooklyn in time to make it to a lot of places. So we're going to try to stay open as late as and possible. And it's very convenient if you have a car. I mean, the, there's, there's the McGinnis exit. Right, and, yeah, the McGinnis oh. exit. And there's also parking under the BQE that is free and abundant. So yeah. Otherwise, you get everywhere. off the L train at Lorimer Avenue, yeah, right? Lorimer Walk stop. a couple blocks. Yeah. yeah. And then during the weekends, we'll be open uh, from uh, 11 to 7 on Saturday and noon to 6 on Sunday. And one uh, real exciting wow. thing about that neighborhood is, um, I don't know what to call it. Besides to say Williamsburg is silly, is, um, but there is a brew hall, a beer hall um, opening, kitty corner to you. Yep. There's going to be, yeah, it's a, there's a, a beer garden. Market, a beer garden, yeah. a flea market. There's, um, it's an old Italian neighborhood. One shop actually sells monuments of the Madonna and bread. Those are their own. Oh, yeah. Two I items. saw that place. Yeah. yeah. It's a very interesting, you know, Italian culture from, you know, Salerno. A lot of those people meets, you know, a cutting edge renaissance, uh, you know, back to the old ways of doing things. So it's a great place. And soon people could spend the whole day there. McCarran Park, great farmer's market, actually. Yeah. And I bumped into Michael Hurwitz. Oh, no kidding. There. And, and, um, the cheesemakers were there and they just moved to that neighborhood. So Saturdays in that neighborhood would be great. Yeah. Yeah. And then once you're all done, you can go to a really amazing bar like the Richardson, which is right around the corner, which uh, we're Richardson's really good amazing. Yeah. They do really great drinks. It's really yeah. making me want to move to the neighborhood. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. Also one of the few places you can get George T. Stag bourbon, which is the best oh. bourbon in the entire world. Okay. So and one I- of the nicer places to sit outside. You know, I'm not a huge fan of sitting outside with traffic and this and there, but even though it's right by the BQE, you get a real nice feeling and you look out to a really cool, uh, it's nice energy, certainly when the weather's nice. Yeah. All right, then. Well, this has been the main course, uh, part one. <laughs> Thank you, Tom Milan, for joining us today. Thank and you guys we for having were me. We're sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Thank you, Jack Insley and Nat Wiener. Yeah, our good job, guys. Yeah. We'll take we'll a 10 minute break. We'll be back. Yeah. Say 